Well, welcome back as we um, continue our study through what is largely considered to be the most difficult book in the entire Bible to interpret, the book of Zechariah. And as we come to the last three chapters in the book, which really um, fit together as one section, uh, it doesn't let up. This is, in fact, a very challenging section to interpret. I think it actually is valuable for us both to try to get the truths out of this portion of God's word while learning to interpret responsibly. That's with humility, knowing that we may not have all the answers, um, but also to learn how we approach a passage, which in fact is uh, difficult to interpret, where responsible Christians who love God have come to different conclusions. And so we're going to try to do that tonight as well. Uh, It'll be helpful for us to keep in mind uh, that there's a series of promises that Zechariah has been making. He's been making promises about um, the blessings that God is going to bring upon Israel. He's going to restore them and give them peace and wealth and so on. And right next to that, Zechariah is also talking about them having unfaithful shepherds. And you got to figure out how these things fit together. How do we have unfaithful leadership in Israel and actually quite a few unfaithful people in Israel fitting together with God pouring out his blessings on his people? And that's part of the purpose of tonight's prophecy. Zechariah is going to point ahead and show how that can be. And in fact, it's a very important lesson for Jewish people to learn. It's a very important lesson for Christians to learn in the 21st century as well. But before we look at this portion of God's word together, uh, let's go before the throne of grace and ask the Lord to bless our study tonight. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful um, for your kindness to us and for giving us your word. And yet we confess that, um, as Peter told us, there are parts of your word that are difficult to understand. And uh, we ask that you would keep us from running off into dangerous directions, but being open to what you have to say to us through this portion of your word. Um, Give us minds that would understand, hearts that would want to follow you more closely. And uh, we pray that as we study your word together, that um, you would make us a kinder and more loving people, a people who are devoted to your good purposes. And we ask this in Jesus's name. Amen. Um, I do hope that most of you had an opportunity to read chapter 12 um, before tonight. Uh, We, of course, will read it together. Uh, But it is a difficult passage to interpret. And in fact, in the Reformed world, there are two main interpretations of this passage. But in fact, there could be quite a few subdivisions of that. And so I want to do a little bit of whodunit tonight in terms of figuring out what's going on in this passage. Um, The questions aren't really that complicated to ask. They may be a little challenging to answer. So the first question I want to ask is, when is this passage talking about? We want to get that out on the table, first of all. What are the options? Secondly, who is Zechariah talking about? Uh, Not in terms of the nations, but in terms of the people that he describes as Israel and Judah and tribes and so on. Who is he talking about? And as we fit those two things together, we're going to see there are a surprisingly large number of options for us. It will be helpful for us to remember that while we're trying to sort it out, the people in Zechariah's day all would have been looking forward to this as being in the future. 
It was 100% in the future to them. It was centuries into the future for them, if not maybe 21 or 22 or 25 centuries in the future for them. Um, so they would have seen it as one big package. But because we live on this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, and we're looking back 20 centuries uh, to the time of Christ, uh, it's helpful for us to try to figure out when exactly this passage um, takes place, what it's pointing forward to. So I want to start with that question. Simply, what are the options? When could this passage be um, talking about? Not when does it talk about, but when could it talk about? And if you haven't read the passage yet, then we're going to have a little bit of a difficulty with this, but um, I will walk you through it a bit because I think it's important to get the options on the table before we actually study together. Well, there's some messianic verses in there, so I would think it's referring to the uh, coming time of the Messiah. So the time of the Messiah, and can you say more than that, Ray? What, what are the options relating to the, the time of the Messiah? Um, how about the siege of Jerusalem being 70 AD? Siege of Jerusalem, 70 AD. We're actually going to find out that doesn't work very well, but that's a pretty natural guess to start with here because there is a siege of Jerusalem described in this passage. Uh, let me give you a little tip about reading the Bible. People have to do this, um, we scholars do. You can probably go with the notes you have in the front of the Bible. But we're trying to figure out to date a book of the Bible. Um, it's often very hard to date a book exactly, right? Unless we're told uh, some markers to it. But if you look at a book, for example, like Second Chronicles, which is really part of one book of Chronicles, um, we can say this. It's a historical book. It's not prophesying at the end. And it describes Cyrus's decree um, to send the people back to Jerusalem, right? To rebuild the temple. And so when we're going to date the book, we know it came after that, right? And so Ray is on the right track here to start with the fact that there are messianic issues here, and they actually speak about after Christ has died. So we know that Zechariah is talking about either when Christ dies or right after that, but potentially all the way up to the end, to Christ's second coming. And that actually leaves us with three options. It could be referring to the period very close to right after Christ died. Peter pointed out that one thing you might want to think of is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It could refer to the entire church age, right? That is, this is taking place over thousands of years. Or it could be referring to a time very close to Christ's second coming, right? All three of those are options. We haven't tried to sort it out yet, but um, one of the things I want to encourage you as you read the Bible is don't rush to the conclusion too quickly. If you rush to the conclusion because it feels good to you, you could be missing better options. So the first thing we want to say is there are at least three options here. Here's my second question for you. The passage talks about Israel, Judah, various Jewish people, right? The tribe of Levi and so on. Who, Since, since we're talking about after Christ's coming, who are those, um, who is that referring to? And again, there's a number of options. It's not, it's not that straightforward.
you can guess because you probably can't be wrong here. Almost every guess is going to be a, a legitimate guess. Well, I think that the Judah is um, is a primary focus in this chapter, and I was going to ask if because Christ is from the tribe of Judah, if that was primarily why uh, they're they're focused on in this chapter. But I don't know yeah. the answer to your question as far as what people like except Gentiles after Christ has come. Well, let's, let's let's make sure that we actually get to that question you're asking is why is there a focus particularly on Judah? Uh, but one of your thing is Gentiles. So you're saying it could be Gentiles, Ray. Is it believing Gentiles or unbelieving Gentiles? Believing. Believing. Okay. So one of the options that is very common is to say, and we see this elsewhere in the Bible, is you see Israel in the prophets. And it turns out that when you read the New Testament, it gets applied to the New Testament church, right? And, and that's simply because Israel is a way of talking about the people of God in the Old Covenant. And the people of God in the New Covenant are all those united in Jesus Christ. By the way, you said Gentiles, but not just Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles brought together in Jesus Christ to be the one people of God. That is one of the options. What's another option? You guys can brainstorm. Come on, you've been in brainstorming meetings for business, for school. What are the other options if it's not the New Testament church? The options don't have to be correct. We're going to try to rule some of them out. But what, what are the other options? So it could just be the nation of Israel before, like in the period before the fall of Jerusalem. So that's an option. So we could be talking about ethnic Jews or national Israel in the period between Christ's crucifixion and the destruction of the nation, really, in 70 AD. Although, uh, if you want to stretch that out a little bit, um, Silas, you could also talk about the fact that the Jews aren't ultimately destroyed until the 130s, when you have the Bar Kokhba revolution, and Rome says, we're not even going to let Jews live in Jerusalem anymore. They're such a, such a troublesome people. So maybe that period to 70 AD, maybe ethnic Jews, national Israel for 100 years. Well, I, I, I'm just, I don't want to stretch this out too far, so let me just give you the other options here. Um, another option is Jews throughout history. In particular, talking about Jews, ethnic Jews, before they're converted and again after they're converted. And there's one more possibility, ethnic Jews close to the time of Christ's second coming. Now, now what you can see is, is if you've got three options over here in terms of the time frame, right? right? Right around the time of Christ, throughout the whole church age or the end. And you have this other set of options, which could be the, the, the whole church. It could be national Israel close to the time of Christ. It could be ethnic Jews throughout history who are being converted or a big block of ethnic Jews at the end of history. You have a lot of options when you mix and match all those. So what we're gonna to try to do is read this passage tonight and see uh, which is most likely, and what does it mean? Right? That's the question we want to ask. What would have it meant to the people in Zechariah's day to hear this message? And what would, does it mean to us today in the 21st century? So would someone start by reading um, Zechariah 
um, 12 verses one through six, verses one through six. I can do that. Thank you, Ray. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Thank you, Ray. Um, so let's just start with verse one, right? We begin with a declaration of something about God, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So it's God going to talk about Israel, but then we have this description of the Lord. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Well, what's that conveying? What's that conveying about God? Martha is saying Almighty. Let's go with Martha. Martha? Or Peter on Martha's behalf? Almighty and the creator. Yeah, he's in charge. Uh, and we can throw in there that the last phrase is the threefold phrase, which is a normal um, pattern when you're trying to emphasize the greatness of God. There's usually three things repeated or often three things repeated. He's the creator. He speaks the world into existence. Um, but when you get to the last one there about forming the spirit within man, he's not just saying he's in charge of the big things. An acquaintance of mine today um, that, I, that I saw something and I tried to interact with him unsuccessfully, uh, where he took these pictures of the galaxy that we got from the Webb telescope and basically said, um, look how huge the universe is. Goes to show you how silly it is to think that God's concerned with you. And of course, the amazing thing is the God who spoke the universe into existence will not allow a single hair to fall from your head apart from his fatherly care, right? He, he is both intimate. And this is saying God is completely in charge. Part of the reason why that's so important in an oracle here is it means that what God is declaring, he will bring to pass. Nobody can keep him from doing this. And then he goes on to say in verse two, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. So Peter brought up that maybe this refers to the siege of Jerusalem that results in the sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD, right? And, and that's kind of an initial place to start. That makes good sense as a guess. But it turns out when we pay attention to these verses, it doesn't work. Because in 66 and a half through 70 AD, when the Romans siege Jerusalem, they sack it. 
they level it to the ground. It's the Jews who are destroyed. What Zechariah is saying is the nations are going to rise up against this Jerusalem, this Judah, and it's the nations who are going to be destroyed, right? God's people are going to be the cup of staggering. So when you think about in the Bible, it's, it's a pretty common image. You'll see it uh, all the way through uh, the Bible up to Revelation, the idea of the cup of the God's wrath that he causes his enemies to drink. And he's saying the nations are going to attack Israel and the nations are going to get destroyed when they do that. Well, let's just make sure we see that that's what's going on. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it, right, that are trying to do something with Jerusalem, all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic. You can ask whose horses, but in the context, it's pretty clear it's the invading armies. I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. That is the people that this is describing, the Israelites, the people of Judah, however we want to talk about it right now, they're going to attribute their deliverance not to themselves, but to God. And that fits very nicely with verse one. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. So explain that image. Any, anybody, a blazing pot in the midst of wood. What are the clans of Judah going to be? Well, first of all, who's the wood? The clans of Judah are like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. What's the wood? The surrounding nations. Yeah, Ray, the surrounding nations. So the wood is the surrounding nations, and the clans of Judah are going to be the blazing pot. What are the, what's the blazing pot do? It sets the wood on fire. So instead of seeing Jerusalem destroyed here, what we see is the surrounding nations. So let's think about this in terms of our two possible big identifications here. The people of God, which is the church, or ethnic Jews in some way. Let's start with the people of God that are the church. If that, in fact, is the right way to take this passage, which is about half, maybe a little bit more than that, of Reformed commentators have done that throughout history, uh, what it's saying is, is, yeah, you know what, for the church, after the Messiah comes, there's going to be ongoing persecution. The nations are going to rally against the people of God. But instead of destroying the people of God, when they do that, God is going to destroy them. And instead of the people of God going, hey, you know what? Us Christians, we're really important, powerful people. We're clever. We're smart. But these nations don't have any chance against us. Christians are going to say, actually, it was all the Lord our God. It's the Lord who delivers us from our enemies, not we ourselves. What do you think of that interpretation? Does that fit so far? David, if oh, um, could... I don't know. I'm, I'm usually wrong on this kind of stuff. It's such a difficult book, but 
and looking at some of the history on it, you know, obviously some of the stuff didn't happen that they're talking about. So I'm thinking that if you look at it from like a current age and, and kingdom age perspective where they overlap and not think so much in the current age times, but, but think of the kingdom age where there was a, a type of symbolic and not, and not really symbolic a, a real uh, conquering happened at that time after, after uh, Jesus uh, um, death resurrection, but also it would continue well into the future on the defeat of the nations. To me, that would work, but I don't know if that's what this is talking about. Well, that, of course, that's the question. We're just simply trying to see right now whether or not this fits. And the interpretation, which is pretty common in the church, is to see Israel as being the Israel of God. That's all the people of God, Jews and Gentiles throughout history, who have, in this case, if you're interpreting that way, the unbelievers in the nations and the people groups waging war against it. And yet God throughout the church age, or perhaps at the end of history, um, wiping them out. Right, so you can you can have both those those time frames. You could even, to some degree, put it fairly early in church history. We can we can mark many times that this has happened. Think about the Roman Empire trying to destroy the church, and the, then the Roman Empire becoming Christian. Right, it would be an illustration of this. I'm not saying this is the right interpretation. I'm just getting it on the table. But if we think it's the ethnic Jews, we have to take it differently. If we're thinking the ethnic Jews, we cannot put this at 70 AD because that's a time when the ethnic Jews get destroyed, right? 66 and a half to 70 AD. So that isn't going to work. That leaves us with two possibilities with ethnic Jews. One is this just works out over time. That's basically the way Greg, Greg Beale takes it when you look at Rebel, um, uh, Romans chapter 11. And what he says is, is throughout the church age, Jews get converted to become Christians, and therefore when those people get attacked, of course he would take it as being the whole church, um, that, that that actually works. But there's another possibility that I don't want you to miss out on. This could be talking about ethnic Jews late in church history who are going to be surrounded in a physical way. It actually, you know, could be right now. We have a lot of Jews have united around Jerusalem and Israel and the land of Israel. There's a lot of Jewish people there. And this could be a prophecy that those, um, the nations are going to surround these Jews and attack them. But everyone's surprised, instead of all these nations crushing them, it's going to turn out that God is going to deliver these ethnic Jews. Right? I'm not saying do you agree with that, but do you understand that's a possible uh, interpretation of these verses so far? There's nothing in this passage that would rule that out. Thoughts on that? It sounds a little dispensational, possibly. <laughs> a oh, little has, nothing, has nothing to do with dispensationalism, actually. This is, this is a view held probably by about 35 to 40% of Reformed Christians, um, uh, some of whom have a bit of uh, dispensational tinge to them, like uh, James Montgomery Boyce, but certainly a, re a fine Reformed pastor holds that view. Uh, but you can go back hundreds of years. This is this is one of one of the views. Hmm. Dispensationalism actually divides the people of God, and you're going to see if you follow this interpretation, 
it doesn't do that. Let's look at the next verses here, uh, verses 7 through um, 11. I'm sorry, 7 through 10. Let's see if we can, we can nail this down a bit more. Would someone read verses 7 through 10 for us? I'll read that. <clears throat> and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Mm. Thank you, Silas. So I think this actually narrows down our options a bit here. Um, that key famous phrase there in verse 10, which by the way gets picked up in different ways in different parts of the New Testament, so we have to focus on what does it mean here in Zechariah, um, is they will look upon him whom they have pierced. So we have to ask the question, who pierced Jesus? Who is it that's going to look upon Jesus whom they have pierced and mourn? What are your options? Well, it could be the Romans and it could be the Jews. Could be the Romans, could be the Jews. So you could say this is everybody who was against Jesus. But by the way, that by definition means that they're not yet in the church, right? It, it, it kind of makes it very difficult to say that this passage is referring to those who are believers because it seems like, not impossible, right? Really competent scholars take this in different ways, but it seems like they're looking upon someone whom they pierced and then they become, by God's grace, to a spirit of grace being poured out upon them, they become converted. They are led to repentance. That means the passage can't be, if, if I'm right about that, the passage can't just be talking about the church. It must be talking about those who are going to become part of the church. Does that make sense? It's safe to say the church officially had did not start until Pentecost, which was which would have been after Christ's no, ascension. No, so in one sense, you want to say the church begins with Adam. But when I'm making a distinction between church here, is I'm talking about the people of God. And um, by the way, that if you read uh, in the Old Testament, you'll see the, the people of God in the Old Testament, some is called the church, the assembly, uh, various terms, kahal. Um, so you don't want to think of the church as starting at Pentecost. There is a new age of the church that takes place with the coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection in terms of the Catholicity. It is spread to the ends of the earth, and Gentiles are grafted in without having to become Jews, right? So what we're thinking of here is you can't be thinking of the converted people of God who are saved if what the passage is talking about is people being convicted of their guilt, their sin, for their part in whatever way that means, of piercing Jesus, putting him to death, right? That, that expression in John 19, 
um, is actually tied to the uh, soldier thrusting the spear into Jesus' side. And it's, uh, and John says, and they will look on him who he's pierced, referring back to this passage in Zechariah, um, that this would be fulfilled. We're going to see that people will look upon him who they have pierced in the Bible in more than one way. Um, but but I, I want to focus on how Zechariah is using it here. So does it make sense that it can't be talking about those who are already believers? It's actually talking about those who are being led to become believers. Or does someone want to take another side of that? Well, there's definitely, I agree with that. There's definitely a, a futuristic uh, option there too. Well, it's not just that it's futuristic, it's future in their lives. There's a transformation that is taking place. There's a, there's a logical order. They are looking on Jesus and going, we thought we were killing a criminal. And it turned out we were piercing Yahweh. Um, that can only happen, of course, if Yahweh comes in the flesh, right? But, but it's about they pierced me, right? And, and, and then they're led to repentance and they become believers. We're going to see if you keep reading. They become healed, um, Next week when we start, we'll come to um, verse 13, um, chapter 13, verse 1, and it says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This repentance they're led to is genuine repentance that leads to the forgiveness of their sins. But here's my point. It can't be referring to the church as believers if it's referring to them before they came to faith. Therefore, very likely, I would never say it must in this type of context, but it very likely is referring to ethnic Jews. It's referring to the fact, if you think the broader context of Zechariah, the Jewish people aren't the heroes of the story. God is talking about when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring all these blessings. And then we're told the leaders, the shepherds are unfaithful. And in fact, they kill the Messiah. We're going to get that repeated again um, in the next chapter as well. They kill the Messiah. They are not the heroes of the story. They are, in fact, participants in killing the Jewish Messiah. But then there's a day coming when they will look upon him whom they've pierced and realize the horrible thing they did, and God is going to lead them to repentance. Now, the question is, that can't happen. We already said that it really can't be referring to 70 AD. It could be referring to the whole church age, that this is an individualized experience of Jews being converted, right? Coming to mourn the fact that um, they, they had thought that the Messiah was, uh, that Jesus was not the Messiah. They put him to death and now they're being converted. But the problem with that is it doesn't square really well with the judgment of the nations. I want to suggest it makes more sense to think that this is not just in Zechariah's future, that it's in our future, that there will come a day when there'll be a large scale conversion of Jewish people prior to Christ's second coming. That's just a partial view, and it's a minority view. Probably about 35, 40% of Reformed people agree with me. Um, I don't know what the exact numbers would be, so you, you certainly don't have to. But I want you to keep at least that idea on the table now. Uh, so we go to the raised question about um, why so much emphasis on Judah. I think there's two possibilities. 
One, of course, is, is that that's the emphasis on the Davidic line, the Messiah, right? Um, but we're going to see here in a moment that we also get uh, both the Messianic line from David, and we get his lesser line from Nathan, and we also get the Levites. And, and we have clans in Israel as well. So it very well may just be that Zechariah is writing to people who are all clustered around Jerusalem and Judah in his own day. Remember, when the remnant returns from Babylon, they don't go fill the whole land. They're kind of clustered there in that area. And that, that very well may be driving this. So let's look back here to verse 7 again. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. This is about God bringing those who pierced him to salvation. And probably that ordering here is simply that no one's going to have pride of place. Like, well, you know, I was in Jerusalem. I'm, I had this special uh, connection with God because of that. The point that we're going to see throughout this chapter is God is great. And the victory is not because the Jews are good. It's because God is gracious. Questions on this section before we look at the end of the chapter? David, on verse 10, if we, I could look at that as well as um, saying that we, in, I mean, after Christ, I mean, obviously I'm not Jewish, but um, as a converted believer, mm -hmm. I can look back once I've been converted and realize that I also have mourned because my sin has pierced Christ on the cross. Yep. That's totally, that's a totally valid thing to say. But that, that, that would be a, that would be a totally true thing. So one of the things to realize, by the way, we're going we're we're to sift and we get to this next section, this passage a little bit tighter, I hope, but actually a lot of things are true even if they're not where Zechariah is focusing, right? So it's true that every single time a Jewish person gets converted throughout history, they're, they're in a small sense taking part in what's going on here, or at least they're a pointer to what I believe is going to take place in a dramatic way in the future, right? So Ray, that's totally true. Now, other thoughts on, on the verses up through um, verse 10? In verses seven and eight, um, what's going on with the tents of Judah first before Jerusalem, where before it had been pretty Jerusalem focused, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I, I just don't really understand what's happening, particularly in verse seven with the tents of Judah being prioritized prior yeah, to the glory of Jerusalem. That, that's a great question, um, uh, Rachel, and one that we can only give a somewhat tentative answer to, but uh, most scholars would say it's this. God is talking about a widespread, I don't want to say universal. Some, some scholars use the term universal, but the claim is not here that every Jew is going to get saved, but a widespread salvation and that there's not a special uh, place for salvation, a privileged space for those who happen to be in Jerusalem, right? That like you got closer to holy ground or something, and therefore that's the people God really wanted to save. So by talking about the tents of Judah before you get to Jerusalem as a way of saying it's all the people. I can't say that that's 100% right, but it makes, I mean, I can't say that with certainty, but that's the right answer. 
but that makes sense to me. And that, that is um, from the commentaries I looked at, the, the substantial majority view. It really is trying to rule out a sense of pride for Jerusalem as being the place you have to be. It's focusing instead on the people rather than the place. But there's also a sense. Give, give Rachel a second here. Rachel, do you have other thoughts on that? No, no. I think I think that that follows with the assumptions we're going with in the other verse. So I think that's fine. I'm good. Okay, Ray. You don't think it's because of, there's a focus that that Christ was from the, the divinic line through Judah, you know, and, and described as the the lion of Judah. That there was more of an emphasis on the like I don't know the preservation of the line of Judah. Well. That may be why Judah gets a lot of mention in this passage as a whole, but I don't know that it particularly fits with the issue of salvation here. I think these terms are being used to talk about all the people of God. And we're going to see that when we come to the next session, the next section, that it broadens out a great deal, right? That, that it's not just focusing on the messianic line, right? So the Messiah comes through Judah, but not distinctively for Judah. Yeah. Would someone read the rest of the passage for us, starting at verse 11? I can read that. Thank you, Peter. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning from Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Thank you, Peter. So um, as we see, there's, there's a broader emphasis here. It's talking like, it, it, this is representative, but it's saying all the clans are going to be mourning. They're going to be mourning very, very profoundly. Uh, does anyone, uh, did anyone pick up in a footnote or something the reference to um, uh, Hadad Rimen in Megiddo, what that's about? It, it has to do with Josiah. When Josiah, good King Josiah, gets killed in battle. He gets killed in battle right around there. And there's actually a time of um, great mourning in Israel over the loss of their great righteous and godly king. And, and, and what um, that's being used as here is an analogy because it would have been, in historically speaking, relatively near memory for the people is saying, it's going to be like that, right? There's going to be this extraordinary sense of mourning. And then the mourning is described as going through all the clans, and it's done in private. Any ideas why it's significant, but it's done in private? We have this, this repetition of this idea by themselves, right? The wives by themselves. Why, why is that significant? What, what, what's Zechariah getting at? This may be tricky to us because um, we mourn differently in the 21st century than they did in Israel. I don't know if this is right, but it reminds me of earlier in the book where um, there was the back and forth about when you fasted, was it for me that you fasted? And there was sort of this idea earlier about being um, more publicly and 
sort of insincerely going through these sort of emotional external sort of things? I like that, Rachel. That's a great connection. And I think you were really on the right track. Um, I think you've got about 90% of it there. I would just fill it out just a little bit is to remember that in ancient Israel, the normal way of mourning was public and loud. In fact, people that had a bit of affluence uh, would hire professional mourners, right? So people would like come to lead in the mourning and the weeping. And it's very easy, as, as you're pointing out, then it, for it to become like this outward national event. You know, you've got Fourth of July parades, and then you've got a mourning event that we all involve in. And this is saying it's going to be genuine. The morning, this is going to be a morning of true repentance where people are sorrowing onto, out of and onto true belief in, in God. So I think that's really it. Now, I want to draw your attention to something else, though. It is true that in the New Testament, like in Galatians chapter 6, the New Testament can refer to the church as the Israel of God, right? Paul does that. So that's an important tool to have when you're thinking about interpreting Old Testament prophecy, to realize that sometimes when it says Israel or Zion, that that may very well be applied directly to the church and have no ethnic overtones at all. But I have a lot of difficulty doing it with this passage. Because while that's true of Israel, we're now going back and we're talking about tribes, the Levites, uh, the people that are descendants of Nathan, the Dave, of David, the Shemites, and so on. Um, James Montgomery Boyce suggests this in many ways is the most Jewish paragraph in the whole Bible. There, there seems to be going out of its way to emphasize that these are Jewish people who are coming to mourn over the fact that the Jewish people took part in killing their own Messiah, and they're being called to genuine faith. I'm not saying that's a slam dunk, but, you know, you're trying to weigh things out. It's part, part of why you have all the options on the table. And to me, it makes more sense to think he's talking about Jewish people, right? God is going out of his way to say, I'm talking about the, the ethnic people to whom these promises were made um, that are one day going to be fulfilled in Christ. Thoughts about that? David, you already alluded to it, but if you back up towards the second half of verse 10, <clears throat> they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And that and that makes sense, like you were saying, you know, wives, you know, they were also mothers mm -hmm. and, you know, they would weep bitterly if they lost their first child, right? Or any yeah, child. Yeah, so it's a, it's a way of expressing, you're right, Ray, that's a way of expressing the depth Right. You know, you lose you lose an only child. I mean, you just crushed. It's heartbreaking. Actually, you lose any child. But you know, this is this is a way of intensifying it. And they're saying this is this is going to be deep mourning. How could we? Right. So think, think about putting those putting those pieces together. By the way, we still have Zechariah 13 and 14 that are going to fill this out a bit more. That we'll, We're going to have to keep asking these questions. Who's it talking about? Although by the time we get to the end of chapter 14, we're going to say it's clearly talking about Christ's second coming. When, um, well, I say clearly. There are some post-millennialists who disagree with me, but um, certainly in the future to them, probably in the future to us, where even the bells of the horses are going to be called holy. Um, 
I think that's actually in the new heavens and the new earth. I do have some post-millennial friends who think it's future to us, but before Christ's second coming. We will talk about that in a couple of weeks. But other thoughts about how this fits together uh, in this chapter, and I'm suggesting that it specifically has to do with the fact that God is going to convert a large mass of Jewish people in a visible way. And in conjunction with that, it's going to bring judgment on the enemies of God who are attacking these converted or soon to be converted Jews. That that's that's my best shot at what this is talking about. Does anyone sounds have like, go ahead? Ray? Sounds like it sounds like Revelation, the hundred and forty-four thousand. Well, Zechariah is the second most quoted book in the book of Revelation, alluded to. Revelation really doesn't quote a lot in the Old Testament. It's the second most alluded to book in the book of Revelation. Uh, I will buy an ice cream for anybody who knows who which is the most uh, alluded to book in the book of Revelation. Going once, going twice. It's Ezekiel. Ezekiel is the most alluded to book. Uh, okay, so where in the New Testament might you go to see a, a parallel passage that may, because it's the way I interpret it, usually be these scholars have to pull these passages together. And if you interpret it all one way, that's what you're going to do, or you're going to interpret it the other way. But what's a passage in the New Testament that might bolster the interpretation I'm offering that there's going to be a conversion, a visible, noticeable conversion on a meaningful scale of ethnic Jews in the future? Um, Romans 10, 19. Romans what, um, Gary? Yeah, Romans 10, 19. 10, 19. That says, but I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Um, I don't think that actually does it. It is true that there's you have an interplay there between Jewish people um, being made jealous. So it kind of leads into what Paul's talking about. But I think you really need to be looking a little bit further along if you're going to um, if you're going to come to that. I assumed you were thinking of Romans 11, 25, and 26. I am thinking of Romans 11, 25, and 26, which Martha interprets differently than I do, so she may be correct. Um, we'll let her speak to that. In, in Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 25 and 26, and you have to kind of go back up here and realize, why is Paul talking about, what's Paul talking about Romans 9, 10, and 11? Um, this is a really important point. You don't just pull verses out of context. Why is Paul write verses uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11? Well, at chapter 8, Paul has ended on this idea. What extraordinary comfort we have knowing that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And the natural objection that a person can bring to that is, hey, God made all these promises to the Jews, and they don't believe in Jesus, and they're getting wiped out. And so Paul writes three chapters addressing the mystery of Israel, how hardness in part happened to the people, the Jewish people, until the fullness of the Gentiles would come in. It's important to realize there, therefore, he was talking about ethnic Jews, not about the Israel of God that you get in um, Galatians chapter 6. And then we come to Romans 11 verses 25 and following, and we read this. 
lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Israel there is ethnic Jews. That's how he's using it in chapters 9 and 10. A partial hardening has come upon ethnic Jews, upon Israel, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, or thus, and this way is pretty interpretive, and thus, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how unscrutable his ways, and so on. Now, here's the thing that you have to keep in mind. This is described as a climatic event. It's hard for me to see how a climatic event can fit with simply, well, yeah, Jews get converted throughout history, although that is the alternative view held by Greg Beale, who's a very fine New Testament scholar. Questions on that? Sharp disagreements on that? I have pointed out people do, very good, fine Christians do disagree with me on this. Well, back in Romans 9, it talks about, you know, not, uh, not all descended from Israel are Israel. So that would be the only thing that would bring question in my mind. But I did do some sidebar reading, and I do see that John Calvin holds this view also. So that's, that's uh, interesting. And John Calvin turns out to have been a pretty good theologian. Better always, than me. <laughs> I always like it when Calvin agrees with me. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Or uh, we should perhaps say I agree with Calvin. He's, uh, he's, in, good, he's in good company. Yeah. Okay, but you got to come back to, it's a hard passage. So what we don't do is we don't form a new Presbyterian, new sets of Presbyterian churches where you have one denomination that believes this is about ethnic Jews and another denomination that believes, no, it's really about the church, right? We recognize not everything in the Bible is equally important. But here's the message that the people in Zechariah's day would have gotten from this, or at least should have gotten from this, that we should get from this too. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. God is great. The creator of everything who controls the human spirit is the one who's going to deliver Israel. Israel is not delivered because Jews are good. The church is not delivered because Christians are good. It's because of God and his grace. That's actually the primary message that's going through here. And everything else, which is interesting to us, are the supporting details, right? We don't need to nail that part down. We do need to get it's God who delivers his people, and it's not a team effort. It would have been very easy in Zechariah's day to think, yeah, we're small. We've come back. We're going to be faithful. God's going to make us faithful. And you know what? In a couple hundred years, when the Messiah comes, boy, are we going to be really good. 
and we're going to rule the earth. We're going to make it really happen. And Zechariah is going, you don't understand. Jesus is going to make it happen, right? The Messiah is going to do it all. We are simply going to be beneficiaries of his grace. Does that that make sense to everyone? Because that's really the main point. I will say, however, as we go to the chapter 13 and chapter 14, you are still going to have to ask these same questions again, um, like we did today, maybe not in as much detail because we did it today, but you're going to want to ask the questions of, yes, I see that this is not the main message, but since I live in the 21st century and I have this history, it's kind of nice to try to figure out how exactly is this getting fulfilled? And I think in particular, you're going to want to see how does this fit with um, Romans eight, um, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, by the way, um, we should say that, um, oh, I just lost the verse. Where is it here in Romans 9, 10, and 11? Um, I'm going to have to come back to this next week because I am really bad. I forgot the verse. But uh, the, 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 where, what it is being said is Paul talks about um, the Israel being saved as being like life from the dead. It's a very climatic sort of statement um, that is getting made. And so it's, it's saying if um, Israel, that is ethnic Israel's unbelief was a loss to the world, how much more will their grafting in be a, a dramatic blessing? To me, that fits very well with it being visible. And I'm not saying it's going to happen in this little strip of land we now call Israel. But you know what? That kind of fits very well. It would be visible for everyone to see. There's a lot of Jews gathered in one place. Nations uh, uh, surround them to attack them. God defends them. God converts them. And there's this massive burst, as it were, of new belief because of the Jews being converted. Last questions on that. And then we'll go to prayer. Um, I have a question just because I don't know that this scripture actually fits in with this topic, but it made me think of the section in Matthew where Jesus says, um, Jerusalem who kills the prophets, how I long to gather you up. Um, does, are there any passages that are sort of known for connecting to this theme from the gospels at all? Cause on the whole, I don't think a, lo- a lot of Christ's ministry is not focusing on being particularly happy with the ethnic Jews. So I don't know how much there are for verses that fit that versus yeah, the more well, all-inclusive. I'm gonna, I, I will eventually talk about this because I'm going to start preaching on Matthew um, starting in August. Um, and um, there's a very famous passage that inter, interplays with both the Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11 and with this passage from Zechariah in interesting ways. Uh, regrettably, it too is very hard to interpret, and that's the Olivet Discourse. Um, so you get this description of, that Jesus has uh, when the disciples come and say, look at this beautiful stones of the temple. And Jesus begins by going, well, you see all these stones, not one of them is going to be left on another. And then you got to figure out how much of that gets fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem's destroyed. And is there more that goes on beyond that, which I think there probably is although I do think most of it gets fulfilled in 70 AD. Um, but the tough answer there is, uh, Rachel, A, you're right. The Gospels don't talk a great deal about this. Jesus, of course, is not focusing on that. It gets developed with the, uh, the epistles later after he's uh, raised from the dead. And regrettably, the passage that kind of overlaps with it 
is really hard to interpret too. By the way, that's that's what we would think, right? Bible passages interpret each other. And so if we had a really clear passage in Ephesians or Romans or uh, Galatians that told us exactly what this passage meant, it wouldn't be a big debate. All the Bible-believing Christians pretty much would get to the same position. It's precisely because it does. we don't have that, that it's harder. So I leave you all with that one big thought. Don't miss the most important thing that's being driven, not the details, not the structure, but God is the great God who delivers his people by grace. It is not the people. It is not a team effort. It is God and God alone.